Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 98th episode, I'll be talking to Brett White, TV writer for Decider.com and host of Must Have Seen TV, about, you guessed it, television of the 20th century. Along the way, we discussed the regional variations of do what, learning about German politics from some robots on the satellite of love, and when Bob Newhart met Rob Liefeld, then became a force ghost. No, really. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the math of you. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Oh, wow. Yeah, I am Brett White. I am a reporter producer for Decider.com. I also host the TV podcast Must Have Seen TV, which talks about the sitcoms of the 20th century. And those are like the two main things. I also spent like, I don't know, seven years as a comic book journalist, which is a job that you can have, but doesn't pay anything, which is why I now do what I do. And that's how I initially got to know you a little bit was through your comics writing. And then it was through following you on various social media that I went, oh, okay, you know, also has a TV <laughs> podcast and also has a great TV podcast that has a million <laughs> episodes. So in my particular case, I was able to duck back and listening to you talking about news radio, which is a very, very special place in my heart. Oh, yeah. And then also occasional oddball things like, you know, hanging with Mr. Cooper or going into Cheers Christmas episodes and talking oh, about yeah, your, yeah. your deep love for Cliff Clavin. Yeah, <laughs> that's come up in both Cheers episodes I've done, which have been, I did a Thanksgiving one and a Halloween one. So I've only done holiday ones. So love for Cliff, not just as Ponce de Leon, but in his normal self. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a Cliff Clavin action figure behind me, which you can buy at Target now. The guy that used to run Mego in the 70s has come back and brought back the Mego style figure and has made all these classic TV toys at Target. But if you watch the Netflix documentary the toys that made us there's an episode about star trek i think is where the migo yes. stuff is and you find out that marty abrams who runs migo is i mean kind of like a paul manafort level grifter <laughs> like he's <laughs> i was just like i don't know if i feel comfortable supporting this like because they close out that segment by being like here's the like 16 indictments and like felonies he was charged with and now i'm like <laughs> But he's also making Cheers action figures now, so I'll buy them. <laughs> I'm complicit if you make Cheers action figures. I can't help it. <laughs> Please deliver to me this tiny Cliff Clavin that can live on my incredibly crowded desk. Yeah. And all is forgiven. Well, yeah, I mean, I can also buy, I also have bought little clothes for him because they're like Migos that are kind of like like Barbie dolls. Like you can yeah, yeah. put new clothes on them and stuff. So I've already bought like summer outfits for him and Norm. I'm I'm crazy. <laughs> oh, the thing is, I I know from your various social medias that you 
recently got a new desk and you have documented the setting up of this new desk through your Instagram. Yeah. So the question is, how do your coworkers respond to, I'm going to say, all of the stuff that you have? Well, it helps that I, uh, one of my other coworkers, Dylan, our graphic designer, is as bad or worse than me. So like, I did not feel weird when I started. And I was like, oh, his desk is completely covered in stormtroopers. So we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> After I put all my stuff out, everyone around me was like, oh, like my coworker Karen put out her like Bill and Ted action figures. Oh, bless. Because she was like, oh, I felt embarrassed putting these out earlier, but now, and I'm like, oh, good. So it actually felt like a lot of people felt, I don't know, empowered to put things out since I have an entire lineup of X-Men, a whole bunch of Marvel Cinematic Universe women, and the Han, Leia, Chewbacca, and 3PO from Empire Strikes Back all on my desk in addition to like an alan grant funko pop and a bunch of other stuff i have to keep things very rigid like very segmented i don't you know they have to fit into a category if i'm going to put them out which which is a really nice way of being like well i can't buy that figure because i don't know where i'm going to put him so that helps me that curbs my spending every now and then (laughs) sorry you don't fit the theme yeah, yeah, so I can't, but, like, I'm kind of like, I already have an Iron Man figure, so I don't need any, I do do that, I stick with that, which helps keep things in control a little bit. Yeah, speaking of Alan Grant, did you have any response from Sam Neill in response to your <laughs> extremely thirsty article about how Sam Neill is a sex symbol? I mean, which, I mean, the thing is, I've written two now, which is crazy. <laughs> I mean, I wrote one about, for his was it his birth? No, it was for Jurassic Park's 25th anniversary that I wrote that I should have known I was gay the instant I saw Dr. Alan Grant because he's my first celebrity crush. So I was <laughs> nine when Jurassic Park came out. And he did, I think he did fave those tweets. I didn't get an RT, but I didn't get a reply. But I, and then I just wrote how the piano is now on Hulu in America. So I, so I wrote about, I've never seen the piano before. And I was like, well, I know Sam Neill's in this and he has sideburns, so I want to watch it. Yeah, he's very hot in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> not a good character, but also Harvey Keitel's character is not good either. So it's a oh, there's a lot of bad people in that movie. There's a lot of bad people in that movie, and a lot of a lot of a lot of sex, a lot of uncomfortable sex, and some uh, fingers getting chopped off with an axe. It's so yeah, definitely the thing that you want to write a thirst post about. But that's that's <laughs> that's the niche I've carved out for myself. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, no, I, I do really enjoy your articles, and I did get to send my partner the one about the Ace Ventura rhino oh. birth scene. Yeah. And I got to send this directly to my partner, and I'm like, this is the guy I'm going to interview next week. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that I pitch. I don't know, it's one of the, like, the job that I have, we have to pitch like a certain amount of things every week, and some weeks it's like, I don't know, Ace Ventura's coming to Hulu, I'll write about this rhino butt birth scene. <laughs> So some weeks it gets very like, what am I going to do? Okay. (laughs) Which is like fun, I guess. It was very disturbing putting all those gifts of Jim Carrey forcing himself through like a latex rhino butt, a naked (laughs) Jim Carrey, into the WordPress backend and all my coworkers being like, oh my God, what is this? Just coming over to be like, oh, hey, Brett, we're getting some coffee and what are you doing? Well, that's the weird thing about our job is because, like, all of us have to watch TV at work for work. And, like, with the piano, it's like I'm watching that at work for work. But here is, like, a topless Holly Hunter, a full frontal nudity from Harvey Keitel. And it's like, I know I'm not going to get in trouble for doing this because it's literally my job. Even though we are now sitting on the same floor as, like, HR and sales and not not editorial. So people that probably aren't used to seeing nudity... (laughs) 
on a computer screen during the work hours. But I still like will minimize the screen a little bit because it does feel very weird. <laughs> My partner works for ITV here in Sydney. And so she does a lot of production on reality television stuff. And at one point she said, well, how's your week been? She's like, well, we're starting production on the Australian version of Love Island. So my (laughs) week was literally sitting at my desk with my headphones on watching three seasons of the British Love Island back to back to back to back, just with lunch in the middle. And I'm like, (laughs) are are you okay? And she's like, it'll be fine. Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) I think one of my coworkers watched all of that and was like, "Yeah, that's a that's an intense show," or like, "That's a frisky show." <laughs> all right, Brett. Well, let's start with the basics. Whereabouts did you grow up? I'm from uh, Tennessee in the American South. I'm sure people. I don't know Nashville. I feel like people know country music in Nashville and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm from the South, but like very suburban South. When you say the South, people are like, oh, you grew up on a farm or something. It's like very much not, <laughs> definitely not that. It was the most suburby suburb ever. I don't know. I like Tennessee. But now that I'm in New York City, I feel a lot more affinity for being from the South just because I'm now in the North. I feel like it makes me stand out a little bit more. <laughs> I think people find you can either go one of two directions. And I think it's a combination of, you know, how old you are versus how you feel towards the original place. But I mean, do you find that you've gone more one way or the other? Like, because I find at least when I was younger, when I, you know, came over from from Canada to Australia, I was like three weeks shy of 21. Mm -hmm. And I kind of held very strongly at first to it and was like, oh, yes, I'm different. Look how different I am. Yeah. And I've seen people go the other way where they're just like, no, I don't want to identify myself as being from somewhere else. I will do my best to assimilate as hard as I can. But then as they become older, kind of get a bit more into that. So do you feel like, for example, you know, how you speak changing if you've stopped back in Tennessee for a while or? Oh, yeah. I feel like in terms of like accent, when I'm in Tennessee, like before I even moved to New York, everyone in Tennessee thought I was either Canadian or from like Los Angeles. <laughs> okay. No one, but then as soon as I moved to New York, people are like, oh, yeah, I can hear your southern accent. And I'm like, I don't think you know what a southern accent is. <laughs> or I don't think you understand, like, how bad it gets. But then I've also noticed that, like, if I get out of New York at all, my accent will kind of come back. And if I talk to anyone from the south, like, when I go back home or if I talk to my mom on the phone or something, my accent will pick up a little bit more. But I also do – so I've now lived in New York for – 12 years so i feel like i still maintain keeping a foot in both worlds in a way like i get to pick and choose the best of each like there's a lot of garbage like anytime tennessee gets in the news it is for schools passing don't say gay laws or Mm. or like them electing Marsha blackburn who was a regressive horrible person to be their senator or the democratic senator who i was like campaigning for via new york like, he coming out and being like, yeah, we want Justice Kavanaugh. I would totally vote for Justice Kavanaugh, the, like, alleged sexual assaulter to be on the Supreme Court. And it's like, dude, you didn't have to say that. <laughs> no, you aren't voting. You're, like, you're not even elected yet. Why would you volunteer that information? So, like, that's <laughs> that's how I, like, Tennessee gets, ugh. But, on the other hand, it's like, I have Dolly Parton and, like, Loretta Lynn and, you know, Blanche Devereaux, Rogue of the X-Men. I really identify really strongly with a lot of the good things about the South. And so, being in New York, I get to, I don't know, I get to not, I don't know, live under the regressive stuff about Tennessee. But I also get to be like, well, back where I'm from, you know, hush puppies are what we, we love hush puppies. Like, Mexican food tastes like this. Like... (laughs) 
But then when I go home to Tennessee, uh, I get to be like, you know, well, yeah, I'm, I live in New York, and people are always like, whoa, you get, I don't know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of a best of both worlds thing that I really, that I like. <laughs> Sounds great. I've accepted the fact that I've had quite a few people from the South on the show, and not a ton of them have what I consider to be a strong Southern accent. Like, you know, no one sounds like they're from Pigeon Forge. Right, yeah. But it'll be every once in a while, I'll be talking to someone and they will say, lawyer. And I'll go, oh, <laughs> right. I remember. Or a word with a W-H at the beginning will become when. And I was like, oh, right. okay, there are my yeah. signifiers. Yeah. Like, it's, it's just interesting. I think movies and TV have conditioned us to expect a lot more from an accent without taking in you know, some of the idiosyncrasies of, okay, well, if you've moved around or if you started somewhere and then went somewhere, it will change. Or even just that, yeah, there are outliers within it. Like I can, you know, my friend Alex is from Perth on the west coast of Australia. When people hear him, they assume, like like you said earlier, that that he's Canadian or that he's from somewhere else. And it's like, yeah. no, he just has an interesting way of speaking. And that's it. Like he's, you know, born and raised in Australia. And it just sounds different from anywhere else just because of who he is. Yeah, I I get that every now like I don't know. Apparently, I say umbrella, um, umbrella. I don't know. Oh, apparently, hit, hit I say um, yeah, yeah, which I, was apparently weird, but I did not know that. Also, if I can't, so when Glenn Weldon, who's like works at NPR and mm-hmm, is like mm-hmm. a you know a gay Twitter celeb or whatever, he tweeted out like a poll like if if you can't hear what someone says, like what do you say? Like pardon me, come again, but like I say do what. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a southern thing. Like I like I looked through like he had four options. I did not say any of those four. And I looked through I scrolled through his mentions and it was like people being like, Well, I'm from the south and we say do what? And I was like, Oh, I guess that's a southern thing. There you go. And since I also have like a slight hearing problem, I say do what to my husband a lot and i'm very aware of like i feel like that's like the phrase that i get very southern on too i feel like it's impossible to say do what without sounding (laughs) without sounding like you're like shotgun right on the nashville network or something (laughs) that's the thing yeah yeah you can you can picture it and it's like there's that little u shape in the middle of the of the do where it goes down (laughs) and comes back up again and then flattens the what right out well that's like the thing about the south really is just adding in more syllables like, well, hi there, Granny. Like, like my nephews, like Bray, like my name is Brayett. Like, there's like three <laughs> syllables in that. Wow. Is, yeah. The Australian comparison is, uh, especially Australian little kids, because they're very particular about how they speak, especially when they oh. get to about five or six. Because, you know, toddlers and stuff will slur words together or will clip the ends off things or kind of smush words together because they're just learning. But once... The, you get a little kid who has the idea of, okay, this is a word and I have to really like knock these building blocks of a sentence together to be clearly understood. And so you get, Auntie Kimmy, did you know that when (laughs) you go outside and it's just like, I'm listening to this, like the convolutions of vowels that go through this kid, who, by the way, is like standing up on one toe and like spinning her other foot and like bouncing from one (laughs) to the other as she says this. These like verbal contortions. And it's like, this is really interesting from a development standpoint. Yeah, they're trying to like nail all the like ups and downs, all the sing-songing nature of it. Yeah, it's cool. (laughs) But yes, just to sum up the accent conversation, I have been watching a lot of Fortune Fire lately. And so I get to hear all kinds of accents from oh there. yeah <laughs> and i've mentioned it before there was a guy who was from tennessee who referred to himself as the smoky mountain cowboy and our mutual friend l collins was the oh, one yeah. who said to me there are no cowboys in the smoky mountains i don't know what this guy is doing oh yeah 
I yeah, I forgot that Elle's also from or like lives in Tennessee now or is from there too. Wow. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Bringing people together through yeah. remembered anecdotes. <laughs> so growing up in Tennessee, what sort of kid were you? So I think it's not a surprise, given what I do now, is I was a lonely ass kid. <laughs> now, like, I mean, I TV was my only friend. And I don't like say that in a bad way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a weird like I did not have any friends from third to eighth grade in Tennessee. Oh, wow. And it was because like I was made fun of a whole lot. So first of all, like I had a lot of allergies. I was a very sick kid. And so I was indoors all the time. When you're a kid indoors. I watch television. Like, my parents, I don't know, I hear other, I hear, like, my peers now, like, talking about, like, we're only going to allow one hour of television or, like, no television. I'm thinking back to my childhood, and, like, my parents never put a limit on anything with me. (laughs) And I don't know if that's because they felt bad, because I was, like, I was sick. I was a very early like i was very premature um my mom was bedridden for six months before i was born (laughs) like it was a very fraught pregnancy and birth and then i was a sick kid and so i feel like they probably were just like let him do literally whatever he wants and so i would like they were always very supportive like i got into comic books when i was in second and third grade and they like bought all the comics and because they were very wise about like he's reading you know Mm -hmm. you have like elementary school teachers being like comic books aren't real books like no you need to read real books my parents both of which like barely graduated high school for various reasons like a higher education was not a thing in my family but they wanted better for me and we're like he's reading so like we're gonna buy him all these comic books you know they also bought me like the adult star wars books that were written for adults and i would read them in second grade oh wow so yeah this that was like my childhood was just like inundated with pop culture and like literally watching television from the minute i woke up to the minute i went to sleep so i know which i feel like is definitely why i am currently sitting in my home office which has five thousand comic books in it and just a ton of action figures and like old television memorabilia so i am exactly what i was as a child but now yeah absolutely and the thing is i think when you're watching in sort of a you know, when your diet is very broad in that way I mean, at least I found with me, it was, you know, just grabbing random books off the shelf and going, I'll, I'll read this, I think. I actually read a Jackie Collins book when I was 13, <laughs> and that opened a few doors for wow, me. Wow, yeah. Hollywood Kids, man. It was a weird book. <laughs> but this idea of, of just being like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. Were there things where you look back now and you go, you know, I probably shouldn't have been watching that? Oh, I mean, that was the thing is my parents were actually, I, I guess I, they didn't restrict the time I spent watching TV, but they did restrict mm-hmm. what I would watch. Like I wasn't allowed to watch Married with Children, The Simpsons, or Roseanne as a kid. And so I have like zero affection for The Simpsons, which is blasphemous being a person <laughs> my age and younger and older. But it's because I was not I was never allowed to watch it. And I do think there are things that you have to watch as a child to form the deep connection like i can watch simpsons now and appreciate like this is funny this is very well crafted but there is like i'm not gonna feel the way i feel about the simpsons the way i feel about like the tick or animaniacs or rocco's modern life or dari or like the cartoons that i watched when i was a kid that like really pushed me further the lame thing is is i didn't fight any of it my parents also like blocked mtv from our house so i never watched mtv until we moved and i discovered that So, as a child, they told me that they called the cable service and had them, like, 
disconnect MTV <laughs> from our house, which I do not oh. think that that is possible. I don't think you can call oh, Brett. <laughs> the cable company be like, we don't want this one channel. And so that like, you know, before I was in like fifth grade that I bought that. But then when we moved houses, I thought, so then they would like erase the channel from the TV, which, you know, you just go through and like add delete. But I was realized, oh, if I type in 34, it'll go right there. And so I would watch MTV. So I, I sneak watched MTV throughout all of like seventh and eighth grade. So in terms of like things I should not have been watching, but was, was MTV in middle school, which is literally middle school television. So it wasn't really, it was sneaking it, but I, I guess it was also advanced because, you know, you watching like real world, an old <laughs> real world, old real world, which was super progressive like that's the first time i ever saw gay people aids like pedro had aids on real world san francisco and so like i met someone who had aids when i was in middle school also people of color because again tennessee is not that diverse (laughs) or like it is diverse but it's also very segregated and i didn't really have i don't know i didn't really have my parents weren't exactly taking me to places where a lot of non-white people were basically so i was like getting exposed to a lot of stuff by sneak watching mtv as a middle schooler which i feel like a lot of people were watching mtv in front of their parents <laughs> i'm trying to think if there's anything i don't know i feel like i was always very on trend with like what I should have been watching culturally, I think. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't even get into I've always been into superhero comics. I've never even been into like Vertigo or things like that. Which I feel like if I was reading, you know, Sandman when I was ten, that would oh man, that would have been crazy. But instead when I was <laughs> ten, I was reading Generation X. <laughs> but like that's what, you know, or uh, you know, fatal attractions and stuff like that. So <laughs> And I think when it comes to when you're taking in that level of content, I mean, it's something where it's something I find it really quite comforting about your show is that you don't realize exactly how much you're taking in. Yeah. Like the example I always think of is when I was in Canada, when I was younger, when I was a teenager, if you would ask me, hey, are you a fan of Seinfeld? I would be like, oh, no, you know, it's on sometimes I watch it and it's funny. But then what happened is that I was here in Australia in maybe my first or second year and Channel 10 one day just ran a marathon of every episode of Seinfeld. Oh, wow. For like, for like three days. Yeah, it's days. I would just turn it on every now and again. And what I found was that like every time I turned on the TV, yes, I remember this one. I remember what happened in this one. I remember the jokes of this one. Yeah. And then getting to the end of just like, not even like intensely watching this, but just casually watching this marathon as it was on and going, huh. I guess I was a fan because <laughs> I knew every single one of these. So in like going back through your show, what I found is that I would go, oh, I, I have no memory of this. And it's like, no, I did in fact watch haphazardly a half dozen of this thing yeah. or much more of this thing than I expected. Like I found myself thinking back to, um, shit, what was it called? Hang on. I nearly called it by the name of the opening title team. Um, oh, Out of This World. Which was the alien girl who oh. had superpowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I nearly called it Swinging on a Star because my dad really loved that theme song because he knew the, the, <laughs> this song. And so it's like, oh, yes, I can properly describe you the plot of this high concept alien show from, I think, maybe two years in the late 80s. Oh, yeah. It did not last long, I don't think. No. And yet it has far more impact than it yeah. should. 
Well, that's like, I mean, going back and discovering that Dino Riders only lasted like a half season and maybe only like eight episodes, but Dino mm-hmm. Riders was in the, oh God, was that pre or post? That was post G.I. Joe, but like pre Ninja Turtles for me. I went through yeah, very yeah. like hardcore phases as a kid. And so like, mm-hmm. but like Dino Riders was this huge, I had all the toys, like I love the toys. I would draw them all the time, but like it didn't last and or even like going back and realizing that like salute your shorts on Nickelodeon only had 20 episodes <laughs> or something crazy like that and it's like I don't know but I watched it all the time but I was also which I don't think is surprising at all a very intense fan as a kid like I don't <laughs> think I think I was very aware of everything that was influencing me because I would not miss an episode and I would go so like when I got into middle school I would start I would start recording things like as they would go into syndication like when Seinfeld went into syndication when Buffy went into syndication and maybe even Friends I would record every episode beginning with the first one and I would compile these VHS libraries of like 12 episodes per tape and I would make labels on the computer in Microsoft Paint. <laughs> you know, and I did that with Muppet Babies because Muppet Babies was like one of the most formative shows of my life. And I would, you know, I would find out what the titles were and for season nine of Seinfeld. So like I had Entertainment Weekly released a guide of the first eight seasons because it was before season nine, which they knew was going to be the last season that came out. And so I didn't know the titles for the season nine episode. So I made up my own titles to put on the labels. <laughs> they were usually pretty i can't remember if i got any right but like i was always like it was either all or nothing which i think is not surprising (laughs) at all i either like loved a thing or i just like did not watch it but i watched so much television that i would have like i would actually write out schedules like here's my monday night shows my tuesday night shows (laughs) it was a lot and i wouldn't watch everything except cbs cbs was the only network that i was like no thank you i'm just picturing this and i'm just realizing like you were training yourself to be like a little stan lansing from murphy brown yeah yeah (laughs) you've got the big board (laughs) yeah oh yeah that's i mean but I, I also, I feel like I've talked about this on the podcast at one point, but I feel like growing up pre-YouTube, you unknowingly are learning the history of pop culture by watching so much television. Like, I knew when everything aired. I knew what order things happened in the world because of watching all this stuff. Like, I knew I Love Lucy is the 50s. Dick Van Dyke is the 60s, specifically the early 60s. Bewitched is, like, early to mid. I knew, like, Bob Newhart, Mary Tyler Moore in the 70s. You know that, like, the Looney Tunes are cartoons from the 50s that are making references to movies from the 30s. But you're (laughs) watching it in the 80s and 90s. But it was also things that were, like, cordoned off. Like, you knew, like, when Nick at Night started, like, here's all the older stuff. I don't know. I feel like now you go on, like, since everything is available at all times, there isn't as much, like, I have, like... I don't know. This is the thing I should. <laughs> I feel like I should pitch an article at work of like me talking to interns about what they know about the history of television. <laughs> like, what is your frame of reference for I Love Lucy? Like, when do you think it took place? How have you been introduced? Or do you even know anything about? I mean, I think Friends is classic. Friends is definitely classic TV mm-hmm. to all of our interns. I was gonna say maybe don't pitch that too hard because that's yeah. kind of the premise of my show. So no stealing. <laughs> But no, I know exactly what you mean, because I too was a renowned video pirate. I hand wrote my labels, and you got the extended play tapes that would last you six hours, and you could fit three movies or 
like five and a bit episodes of Buffy on there. Yep. But when you're taping it, you're, to me, you're keeping it in the frame of reference because you keep the commercials in. Yeah. And like I had the same Transformers tapes that my dad recorded because it would air at three o'clock. And so it would be done by the time we would get back from school. And because my dad was a genius, he would record my Transformers and my sister's gem episodes on the same tapes. So we wouldn't have to switch them out when he was putting them on for us. Ah. But then again, like you said, like talking about references to I Love Lucy or like the Brady Bunch or something, I managed to be like, I was born in 82. And just because of the television that we had to watch, that stuff wasn't at the time in syndication in well, New Brunswick in Canada. So I knew of them because other things would make jokes about them. Yeah. But those things were not on or available for me. And so, like, I knew that, for example, my dad explained the Hawaii episode of the Brady Bunch about the, the little tiki idol yeah. and stuff and being like, oh, I, I don't know what that. I Honestly, I never watched any Brady Bunch until the movie came out. And it yeah. was just this thing that was this massive, like, gulf in my knowledge. But I can tell you all about Columbo or the Rockford Files <laughs> or any of that stuff. But for me, that bit wasn't there. So, yeah, it's interesting when you talk about, okay, well, you have a lot of knowledge about this thing, but you have no knowledge of this other thing. I think that actually is an article, and I actually rescind my previous <laughs> restriction on pitching it. It's a thing I don't know how... We're so inundated with options now. Everything is available to you at all times. And I, it mm -hmm. just makes me wonder, is there an actual... I feel like my generation, you did not have to care about TV in order to become like an armchair TV historian. Just because you only had cable and you didn't get to pick things. So you wouldn't end up watching an I Love Lucy marathon or, you, you know, the afternoon reruns of Grace Under Fire or something. So you would just kind of take in a lot more knowledge. And now that kids younger are mostly just watching like YouTube unboxing videos or, you know, pranks, <laughs> like they don't have to. And it's, and it's not to say that it's a bad thing. It's just a different thing. And, but I, mm -hmm. as someone that loves the history of television, I do wonder like, you know, what is being lost what is what is pop culture going to look like when the kids that are 20 years younger than me are making pop culture because right now we're getting you know like mike sure who did parks and rec and the good place and worked on the office is like such a cheers person like he loves <laughs> cheers and you see that yeah cheers influenced him that he made parks and rec that makes total sense so <laughs> And you're seeing the same thing with, like, the recent resurgence of multicam comedies now because there are people that are my age that grew up in, like, the mussy TV era, which is, like, the last gasp of, like, critically acclaimed ratings blockbuster multicam shows. Because the last 20 years has all been blockbuster ratings, but critically reviled <laughs> of, like, the Chuck Lorre stuff. I was about to say, yeah. Speaking of which, listeners, we are right in the middle of a campaign to save one day at a time. Please go save one day at a time. Yeah, which is, that's, like, that's exactly the thing, is, like, when, I feel like it's so unfortunate, because we've been in this rut of 20 years of bad multicam shows, that now there are actually good ones again, it feels like having to, like, lead people to them more, because, I guess because they've spent 20 years not watching them, whereas I'd never stop like even in like the drought of the last 15 when they were bad i was still watching old ones like i'm always watching golden mm -hmm. girls like so <laughs> I'm, I'm still used to those rhythms but i do think what is interesting is all the kids sitcoms are multicam like all the disney and nickelodeon ones are all you know shot in front of well they say they're shot in front of an audience but i would imagine those are probably actually 
laugh tracks. But they're done in that style, and so I do wonder, like, what the pop culture by the kids that are raised on Nickelodeon multicam sitcoms, but also, you know, fail videos on Vine, which isn't even a thing anymore. Like, what is that going to look like? <laughs> kids watching TikTok compilations now. Yeah, yeah. Want to get down with the kids for real. Yeah. But this is actually a nice segue, because something that we talked about a little bit in sort of setting up this episode is something which at least to me, or well, I didn't get into it until I was sort of a later teenager because of lack of access. But I've talked to a lot of people about being very informative and having a lot of, like you said, those sort of staggered references to, well, this was made this, so it's making reference to this, but it's also a throwback to this. Let's talk a little bit about Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, yeah. That was my, God, like, discovering Mystery Science Theater, I was in sixth grade. So, and it was like we just moved to Smyrna from Hendersonville. So I was like a new kid in town. I obviously didn't have any friends because I was in sixth grade and didn't have any friends. But I, I, I always had TVs in my bedroom. And so I could just watch TV all the time. <laughs> and Mystery Science Theater, I remember like stumbling across the Creature from the Black Lagoon episode, you know, at midnight or whatever, because that's when it would the reruns would air. And it just like, it reformatted my brain. In middle school, I have such a fondness for my middle school comedy shows. So I do think the middle school is when you're really forming your own opinions. It's when I was finally starting to watch TV independent of with my parents. Because my parents would sit down and watch TGIF with me or they would watch the Thursday night NBC comedies with me. But like Mystery Science Theater was my thing. <laughs> like it was a thing I, I probably even kept secret from them. But like that show, the fact that you could do that, like that show, that's a show that breaks every rule. Like it's a two hour long show that is a movie every week. <laughs> Like, that's crazy. <laughs> and it's also so noticeably low budget and so irreverent. Like, I wish I had more specifics, but every now and then as an adult, someone, like, I will read a reference to, like, a German political figure of the 50s or something and be like, oh, that was a riff. <laughs> like, because <laughs> it's like in two hours and they're doing, like, I don't know, 10 riffs a minute, they could just do very specific niche jokes in addition to broader ones. And so I was learned so much random stuff or, like, references to, like, songs. Like, it's very possible that I first heard Fleetwood Mac's Tusk via the, like, <laughs> yeah, credits werewolf. of werewolf. werewolf. Yeah. 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 Like, that. And the, like, I cannot imagine any other show where you could pitch a tusk joke and it would make it past the second draft like it would make it past the table read like that's so specific but like that show was it, it was also the show that it felt like you could do it because it was so low budget it was literally just like you're just making fun of a thing and i think that's also why there are so many imitators there are so many bad movie podcasts there are so many you know, just, like, local, like, hey, we riff on movies. Like, I've taken part in those shows at, like, comedy theaters in New York. I think that was what was so inspirational about it, especially at that age. I think it really made me, it really honed my comedy taste. Yeah, it's, I think when you look at some some of that stuff around that time, it's like, you know, the, part of the reason there are so many bad movie podcasts and, and that riff tracks is still a massive thing, it's kind of like when you hear people talk about the Velvet Underground. Yeah. You know, only 100 people bought that record. But they every also, one of those people started bands. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> when I got into it, it was because it was on the Canadian equivalent of HBO, which was TMC, the movie channel. Mm. And I was like flipping through on a Sunday afternoon and found Mystery Science Theater, the movie, which I know the fans of the show don't really love. Yeah. But at the time, again, like you said, it was something I'd never seen before. And it's, again, I found it by accident right near the start. And I kind of sat down on the floor. I didn't even make it to the couch because 
I was like in the, the floor of my living room and I just kind of stopped and watched for a few seconds and then sat down and kept watching. And I sat there for like an hour and 15 minutes because it was something that I had no frame of reference for, but it was extremely funny. Yeah. And I knew it's like, I had this feeling that if I turned away, I wouldn't know what it is that I was, that I would be able to find again. It's something that my friend Andrew Isla has talked about the first time he saw Space Ghost. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Where it feels like you've linked into this pirate feed and I don't know what's happening, but I like it and I don't want to lose it. And then later, when I was at university, I would go to this, like, you know, very grungy record store down by Byward Market in Ottawa. And they had some of the tapes for exorbitant prices because they were imports. Uh They got Catalina Caper, which is like a fake beach blanket bingo movie with Tommy Kirk in it. Uh, <laughs> At least the first 20 minutes are all references to casting gags where it's like, oh, he, he beat out so-and-so and Frankie Avalon for this part. And just like listing all yeah. of the people who were in sitcoms or really crappy like Disney beach movies and just running through lists of names. And I'm like, I don't know any of these names. I don't get it. Yeah. And so it was the burgeoning internet. So I would just go and look them up. But at the time thinking, God, how would this have played? being on tv where it's just like i'm gonna give you 40 references in the space of maybe five minutes every time a new character comes on screen i'm gonna run through a list of other people who could have played this character it's kind of like those are the kind of jokes where it's like if you don't know who that person is it's not gonna turn you off but if you do know who that person is you're going to love the show forever because they spoke to you in your secret language (laughs) like they made such a deep cut reference i i mean i still say whoa huge slam on anteaters out of nowhere from (laughs) overdrawn at the memory bank i say that that runs through my head at least once a week and maybe sometimes i'll say it out loud but it's it's such a it's become a part of my dialogue and that's like not a thing like that's not a reference that people know but it's <laughs> but like yeah like that that show space ghost also i was obsessed like in sixth grade i feel like i only owned space ghost t-shirts i had a brax <laughs> well wow. i feel like i had a brax shirt that said like where's my bologna sandwich or something and i loved <laughs> all of the cds because like rhino put out those like cd compilations of all their original songs and i'll still sing nobody likes me it's really kind of sad maybe because i'm evil why is that so bad (laughs) like i still think of all those stupid songs all the time i also loved well john henson's talk soup was a big one for me because i also loved shitty bad like talk shows and that's all that show was was just making fun of talk shows so like i had a very deep affection for jerry springer and so, like, having a, a show where every week they would make fun of those shows, ugh, that also helped hone that. And I think also, like, news radio really slides into all of that as well, because that was also a, like, 96 to 98 is this very specific comedy time uh, in my head, I guess because I was also, like, 12 to 14. And so everything that, like, happened right then that's like Who's Line, American Who's Line, UK Who's Line reruns were also like huge for me at that point. Tony Slattery is one of my formative role models in life and <laughs> comedy, everything. But yeah, like that that period was just so filled with like so many things that have like really stuck with me. Even if I don't actively watch them all the time, like thinking about those jokes or that aesthetic is what I like going for or like I'm still drawn to. Still love a bad movie. Yeah. And I know what you mean about the stickiness of an MST3K joke. Like, I've, I think I've tweeted it maybe four times. Like, it's one of those things where if I go and did the search, I would be embarrassed how often I have said the same <laughs> thing. But it's just like, I'll be sitting there at work, 
and like focusing on something and then my brain will just suddenly go Van Damme and Van Damme in Van Damme Yankees. <laughs> and I'm like, that's that's not a joke. It's not a rep. It's not a thing. Yeah. But it's very funny. Well, I mean, it's like the whole like beef, slab hard, charred, hard oh, hunk. like Thick McRun fast. Yeah, like just coming up with space mutiny names. What's also crazy about MS23K is there are so many episodes that I've only ever seen the Mike ones. Like I'm a Mike person. Yeah, me too. I've seen a couple of Joel ones because I got them on VHS. Uh, because again, mm-hmm. like it was so hard. So Comedy Central would never rerun the Joel ones because they aired no Sci-Fi, which is where I watch it. Would never rerun the Comedy Central episodes because of rights, I guess. And those VHSs were probably pretty expensive, and I could never get my hands on all of them. So it is wild that I'm a super fan of a show that I've only seen maybe half the episodes for, and I'm not actively trying to find <laughs> the other ones either, which is also crazy. Yeah, and there were a bunch that because of rights they aren't available and you can just find entire episodes on youtube Mm -hmm. it's one of those situations where it's like do do i watch this do i feel do am i to feel bad about this i don't know i think they would want it they would want it and keep circulating the tapes yeah yeah the new mst3k is also so much fun it is again like it is it's the nature of the job that i have that i have to watch so much tv that if i'm not assigned to cover mst3k the return I can't watch it. Like, I don't get time or, or remember to watch it because Netflix just releases too much content. There is so much. Yeah. Too much content. Ugh. But when I do get around to it, I'm like, God, it's such a fun formula. And, like, all the new people are all still very good. I mean, Elliot Kalen from The Daily Show is, like, the head writer, and he's such a funny guy. So, like, it's in good hands. It's still a good show. No, and the thing is, I, I really like it as well. And it's... Although the, my one caveat, with especially the first couple of episodes, is I actually find the joke density to be too much in some situations. Yeah, that's my only thing. Is like it is very like they could lose half the jokes because there's just so many in certain situations, especially if it's like a fast moving scene in the movie they're watching. Like they will be hitting you sometimes every one to two seconds. Yeah, or less. And I'm just like, okay, that last one landed, so I missed that other one. But I suppose for someone else, that first one didn't land. Yeah. And the second did. I see what you're doing. But everyone <laughs> calm down. You're, you yeah. are all funny. Everyone relax. But yeah, it did feel like it was comforting to go back into that format in a way that I almost didn't know how to parse. Because the format itself hasn't changed. It's just, it's just you know, updated with newer references. And, yeah. And yeah, with new people. So I think because MST3K was so formative, it's very easy for someone to go, oh, well, this is, although <laughs> I have, you know, seen a couple of bad attempts to do <laughs> that kind of riffing. It is a special kind of talent. Yes. Yeah, it's not. And when you, it also speaks to just what I like about humor anyway. Like there's, so Mystery Science Theater is very rarely making, they're very rarely being mean. It is the, um. so when I was in high school, I, I talk in a circuitous way. When I was in high school, in my drama class, we were tasked with like, hey, everybody going to write a sitcom for like a group project because drama was a class for me, not an after school thing. And so like three people were drafted to be the script writers and I was like the head writer. So it was my job to pull all these things into a cohesive whole and do a pass on it and stuff. And all the other people, and it was like, drama was just like a class you could take. So it'd be like the cheerleaders, the dance team, the football player, everyone was just in it. So these aren't people that want to write for a living or necessarily even like comedy besides watching Friends, you know? But it was very indicative of what people who don't actually think about comedy think is comedy, which is being mean to each other. Because that script was just, these are all these characters who are supposed to be friends are being mean to each other. And it is lazy. But that it's a very knee-jerky thing. You see it on Drag Race now when queens think that being... (laughs) 
there's a difference between the queens that are mean and then the queens that are funny, which is like oh, yes. Trixie and Katya are like very bizarre and funny because they can say things that aren't mean but are funny, whereas other queens just think that being shady is funny. I'm, I'm going to tell you that your face looks bad. Yeah, and that's and my like, joke. Oh. It's like, no, it's not a joke. But like Mystery Science Theater, I think what people get wrong about it is they think that, well, yeah, you're supposed to talk about how much you hate the movie. But it's like, no, they take things into unexpected tangents and the reason it is so funny is because it's very rarely mean-spirited like and Mm -hmm. and i think that's also why it buys them leeway to actually get into the like oh my god this hurts please stop (laughs) because not all the jokes are like that i think a lesser show all the jokes would be like that but a mystery science theater it's like one in a hundred jokes are the like i hate this person (laughs) like this person is bad (laughs) like it's one of those things where i I honestly forget who says it who said it now because i've assimilated it so much into my brain Saying that a bad thing is bad is the least interesting thing you can say about it. I think right. it was in someone commenting about about Jupiter ascending. Yeah, and they're like, if you're going to talk about Jupiter ascending, saying that it's bad, that's that's not what I want to hear. I want to hear everything about it because there is so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we've got time for maybe one more topic, and I would be remiss, Brett White, if we <laughs> did not step on the topic that has been in the middle of this conversation that we have not addressed. <sighs> okay. I'm preparing myself. When did you let Bob Newhart into your life as your personal Lord and Savior? <laughs> Elementary school, probably. Nick at Night. I've always loved Nick at Night. I've always loved classic television. It like I remember being six and like crawling into bed to watch I Love Lucy reruns with my parents. I remember when I was a very young child, I was obsessed with the Dick Van Dyke opening credits because I wanted to see him trip over the Ottoman, and I would get mad if he didn't. Like, and so <laughs> all of the like the interest in TV shows made before I was born has been there for as long as I can remember. In college is when I got super into all of this stuff because I made a group of friends. So I, I was in college from 2002 to 2006. And so that was very much the strokes were a major part of my college experience. There was a very like retro revival, like mod, you know, suing in 60s aesthetic even in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I also, I lived in a college town where all my friends were in bands. And so I made a group of friends that were equally into, you know, post-punk, proto-punk, and new wave, and 60s mod garage rock, which also included, like, the films of, you know, the 60s and... I mean, a lot of Woody Allen, which I took class on Woody Allen, so that's a whole other thing um, <laughs> nowadays. But that just reinforced it, and we all gravitated towards specific people. I remember when TV shows would get released on DVD, it was a huge deal with my group of friends. Like, when, when the Mary Tyler Moore show hit DVD, we were all excited. So that, like, I guess that shows you, like, how perfect my friend group was, is, like, going, <laughs> staking out Target for the new release of the new season of Mary Tyler Moore show was a thing we would do, and then covet if someone else got it first. So that's when I really, like, latched on to Bob, and I don't know, I guess I kind of retroactively understand a lot more of it now, because if it gets very psychological, but that's what these people, that's what these shows are all about, and I like thinking about why I like things. Growing up in the South where masculinity is, you like sport, you like football specifically, and <laughs> you don't like clothes, and you like you like football, you don't like clothes, you like eating crap, and 
being mean and you're not smart because being smart is, you know, elitist. I always felt so out of place <laughs> for so many reasons. And I think subconsciously, like, I see Bob Newhart as a example of, you know, cisgender masculinity. Very, like... <laughs> very like straightforward masculinity like it's like that is different that is not macho over aggressive super testosterone etc but it's still unquestionably male so i always felt like weirdly out of place of like i'm a guy but i'm not like that kind of guy but i'm also like not you know on the other end of the spectrum either and I don't know, I gravitated on, like, I loved everything he wore, like, all of the clothes. And I also, like, <laughs> the whole vibe. There's an episode in season two, I think, Mr. Emily Hartley, that is when he finds out that his IQ is 129, which is also what my IQ is when I tested when I was, like, in elementary school. So I'm sure it's gone way up since then, eh? <laughs> like, <laughs> But, like, he finds out that his IQ is 129, and his wife's is 160 or something. Uh, and, like... I related to it so hard watching his insecurity and I've realized more as an adult that the character of Bob Harley is is the worst in all the ways that I am the worst <laughs> like we share all of the the worst aspects of each other and so I I see a lot of myself in that like how insecure he is but also like how resistant he is to change and then it's just like grown to become like an avatar that I have for myself on the internet <laughs> So there's like a lot. I mean, it's a it's it's tied into like a lot of you know a lot of deep shit, but <laughs> but also just because like he just is like the nicest guy is all like it's just such a good he's just such a good role model to have of like just being a good person. I think like you know who knows in today's day and age what's gonna happen, but like I'm pretty sure he's a good person. <laughs> like the fact that he still goes out of his way to email journalists that write nice things about him from his personal AOL account is insane oh bless yeah like I mean I have a framed (laughs) one I have one of the emails framed on my on my wall in my office and I have another one another one of them framed on my desk at work because like that's what he does still and I just I just I just love that I love what he represents and I mean like yeah I think back to all the shit I've done I bought like a trench coat in college because of the opening of the Bob Newhart show credits. And <laughs> I tried to shoot a version of an episode of his for my college. I think when I was a freshman in college, I tried to shoot one with my high eight camcorder thing or no, a DV tape or whatever. It's mm-hmm. been, it, it's, it's goes, it goes very far back. <laughs> <laughs> what I didn't realize is, you know, I always think of Bob Newhart as sort of ubiquitous. Honestly, I thought I I knew more about if someone made a reference to I'm Larry, this is my brother Daryl, this is my other brother Daryl. I knew exactly what it was, but I didn't realize exactly how many shows he had. Yeah. Like, I I know you've spoken at length about this, but please refresh my memory. You said there was one where he was set as a a comic book creator? Yeah, that was Bob. So, like, he had the Bob Newhart show in the set. Well, he had the Bob Newhart show in the early 60s, which won an Emmy but was canceled immediately. It was a variety show. And Mm -hmm. then 12 or so years later, he had a sitcom, the Bob Newhart show, where he was a psychologist. Then he had Newhart in the 80s, where he was an innkeeper. And then right after Newhart ended in, like, the early 90s, he did Bob for two seasons. Well, more like a season and a quarter. Like, season two was only nine (laughs) episodes. But he was a comic book artist. And I'm going to do it on my podcast at some point. I want to get a comic book person on to do it. Because their take on the comic book industry is hilarious. 
<laughs> it was definitely written by people who have no idea how comics are made, which makes so many of the episodes just fascinating. They treat it like a workplace where all of the creative team all works side by side in a room. And also like the office all works on one comic, like the letterer and the colorist just work on Mad Dog. And it's like, that is not how that works at all a letterer can do their job in like it letterers do like 12 plus books a month like that letterer is bored <laughs> like if they're just working on mad dog or depending on their paycheck they have like lucked into the cushiest gig of their lives Ex- yeah but it's also hilarious because it is from the early 90s which is the spectator boom so it's it's that's wild that it's this artifact of the spectator boom of the early 90s there's an episode where they go to what's essentially a version of the eisners in the bob universe where jim lee mark silvestri bob kane and jack kirby and sergio aragones are all in it like oh my god mark silvestri has lines in a sitcom with bob newhart and it's <laughs> wild but what it sucks is so they did 22 or 24 episodes with that premise but for season two they scrapped all of it he went back to working at the greeting card company what because the first episode is he's been working at a greeting card company for like 20 years and he finds out that ace comics is gonna reboot mad dog his 60s superhero and so he like so what the show does understand is that Ace Comics has every right to do that because that was work for hire. <laughs> but they treat it as like, he has to go back and he is going to draw it again, which is like, that is not how that works. But then also the, <laughs> really not. the editor-in-chief of Ace Comics is also the writer of Mad Dog, which is, again, like, that's also not how that works. And also, I don't know, I think the show is set in Chicago. They never really specify. I know they have to travel to New York for the episode where there's a Mad Dog Thanksgiving Day Parade balloon. It also, like, takes them forever to get one issue out. (laughs) Yeah, they get one issue out, and then it's immediately nominated for an award. (laughs) It's great. It's a great episode. It's a great show. But then then after that, he had a show called George and Leo, which only lasted one season in the late 90s with him and Judd Hirsch. That was really good. And uh, the only... You can watch three episodes on YouTube because I bought a four-year consideration Emmy tape that was submitted to Emmy voters 20 years ago. I bought it on eBay. (laughs) This is your life. I digitized it and put it on YouTube because no one else had done it. And there were no episodes of it anywhere. And I was like, well, I have to be the arbiter. I have to give this, you know, out to people. So you can watch that. (laughs) And then um, (laughs) he also had a failed pilot that I don't even know if it shot. I don't even know what it was about, but it starred Cisco of Thong Song fame and Bob Newhart. (laughs) And I don't know what it was about, but it made like headlines. It was like 2002, and I think it's even oh on their God. IMDb. And I don't think he's had a sitcom since George and Leo. Christ, say what you want about Bob Newhart. It sounds like he's tenacious and a workhorse. He was still on The Big Bang Theory this year. Oh, my God. Because he's done ugh, like six or so episodes of Big Bang Theory. They killed off his character in like the second episode he was on, and he's returned every season since then as a force ghost, <laughs> which is nuts. Oh, God, he just was in. He's performing at the Tennessee Performing Arts Center next month, and I just saw him like last October. Like He still does shows, and he's 89. Jesus. I don't know. Hopefully he lives long enough to be in something that I write because I have actually written his character into a pilot. I wrote a pilot set at a comic book journalism, like a comic book website, and the episode is they interview his character from Bob, so I want to get it made so I can expand the Bob universe. Oh my god, Brett, that is the most 
you yeah, think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I got to that point of my pilot, and I was like, oh, obviously, I should just make it that same character. Why not? This is up there, actually. I know you're not a Simpsons guy. This is up there with the band Spinal Tap appearing as Spinal Tap <laughs> in The Simpsons and having Bart go to a Spinal Tap concert. <laughs> yeah. You're bridging worlds. It's my gig. <laughs> All right, Brett. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Uh, you can listen to the podcast Must Have Seen TV. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Brett White. And you can also read the words that I write at Decider.com. I'm currently covering shows like Queer Eye and Project Runway. And you can go back and read all my One Day at a Time stuff. What's coming out? Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, that's basically it. Oh, and Terrace House. Everyone should watch Terrace House on Netflix. It's so good. <laughs> it's really good. Also, yeah. you did a bunch of Drag Race stuff, didn't you? Yeah, and I did a bunch of Drag Race content. Um, I also tweet about Drag Race a lot. Also, Instant <laughs> Hotel, Australian listeners. I am the, I guess, the only American that wrote about Instant Hotel when it dropped on Netflix <laughs> like three months ago. Because according to our Google traffic, I think I was because we got a, almost, I got a lot. <laughs> Got a lot of people searching for Instant <laughs> Hotel and coming to read um, my stuff. They look desperate for that Instant Hotel content. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a fun show. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I would recommend Brett is a quality follow on Instagram for some extremely good outfits. And yeah. also, Brett just got two cats. So if that's your deal, yeah. then get into that. At Dolores and Jean. <laughs> Dolores Van Cartier and Jean Parmesan. Yeah. Because I wanted to name him after any Martin Mall character. And that's, that's the one we settled on. That was the mutual. All right, Brett. So thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been great, and I'm definitely going to have you back. Thank you. Awesome. very much to brett white for his time when i asked brett about signature cocktails he said when it comes to alcohol the only thing i can really drink is cider of some sort because all beer gives me migraines and i guess at 34 i should have figured out what cocktail i like the most but i have not don't worry brett i can help with that i've come up with a concoction that's interesting not too challenging and it will certainly make you look cool if you order it at a small bar i present the Daryl. In a shaker full of ice, combine three quarters of an ounce of green chartreuse, one ounce of botanical gin, and a quarter ounce of lemon juice. Shake vigorously until the outside of the vessel frosts over. Strain into a highball glass and top up with anywhere from one and a half to three ounces of dry cider. Add a big chunk of ice and serve. A convivial beverage capable of turning friends into family. Enjoy!
The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Thursday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You could make it rain. You could buy me a new laptop. You could do whatever you want. You're in charge. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, sometimes physical mail, and I would just really appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or Google Play or any of those places and leave us a five-star review. It helps people find us. Also, if you write a nice review, send it to me. I'd be happy to read it out on the show. If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used going all the way back to episode one, including this one. It's You Only Live Once by The Strokes. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get that new music in your ears. Next week, it's the return of Kate Raculia. Join me, won't you? And I think, normally we look for an easy segue, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it's going to be a pretty organic transition to talking about TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know why. So Somehow I, I think I'll work it out. All I talk about. But no, this is interesting because <laughs> here's the thing. I'm used to listening to your podcast like maybe six months after it's happened because when I get into podcasts, which I did for yours, I think about a year and a bit ago, I download everything and then I will just oh, yeah, kind yeah. of dip in and out. And so I'll listen to something and I'll go, oh, that's really interesting. And I'll go to like tweet at you and I'm like, mm, no, that was eight <laughs> months ago. There's no way I can be like, hey, so you know that thing you said eight months ago about hanging with Mr. Cooper and what, how it makes the suits make you real mad. I still feel that passionately, no matter how much time has passed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I realized that actually that particular episode when I went to listen to it, that I had completely amalgamated hanging with Mr. Cooper with head of the class. And so oh. I went to the, I don't know why. I just like, I read, okay, I read on the title, hanging with Mr. Cooper. I'm like, okay, so it'll be Johnny Fever from WKRP having <laughs> no. like, you know, uh, <laughs> dealing with delinquent students. I feel like, I think hanging with Mr. Cooper is like a half step after head of the class. Because head of the class is like late 80s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Hang With Mr. Cooper is very much like 1993, like TGIF in full swing. The Jeff Franklin machine. Incredibly 1993. Going at it. In vogue doing the theme song. <laughs> Doesn't get more early 90s than that. You expect more neon stuff scribbled over everything. Oh, yeah. A lot of triangles and stuff. I think it's just one of those things. Like Again, this is one of those situations where for the longest time I had a tab open on my phone's Chrome browser. And I'm used to having like you know, 15 or 20 tabs open at a time. But I had one because I found something and I'm like, I must save this for the time I am ever talking to Brent White. (laughs) Because I found out that like three weeks after Perfect Strangers was canceled, they gave Bronson Pinchot a new show called The Trouble with Larry. Oh, wait. 
why on earth would you give someone a show immediately after something else was canceled, but also choose the name of the other character yeah. of the hit show that was just canceled? And it's like, oh, is this like a quantum leap thing where Balky has now jumped into Larry's body and it's continuing <laughs> on? <laughs> it's like, or Larry would have jumped into Balky's body. There we go. Yeah, or it would be like, oh, this is a show where they couldn't get, was it Mark, what's his face? What was his name? The guy who played Larry. Mark Lynn Baker. There you go. They couldn't get Mark Lynn Baker, so instead they had a show where it was all Balky and Mark was just off camera at all times. Yeah. <laughs> What's that, Mark? You're in the bathroom? Cool. I'm going to continue to have this scene. What's that? Oh, you don't want to come out? That's fine. Always on the phone. I have a huge cell phone. That's the trouble with Larry. That's, yeah. It's always <laughs> gastrointestinal trouble. Oh, here you go. I'll, I will read you that elevator pitch. Hang on. It's an American sitcom that aired from 1993 to, sorry, August 93 to September 93. Oh. Bronson Pinchot was Larry Burton, a man re- returning home to Syracuse after being presumed dead for many years. <laughs> after poor reviews and three weeks of bad ratings, it was canceled before the official TV season of which it was a part had even begun. Oh my, I, see, I want to watch all three of those episodes. Re- and also, I'm sure they produced more that never aired. I would love to see that. Uh, Well, then he jumped to step-by-step immediately afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Oh, here's the elevator pitch. He returns home a decade after he was dragged off by baboons on his honeymoon. His wife, Sally, has now married another man and has a nine-year-old daughter. Larry falls in love with his former sister-in-law, Gabriella, who hates him. This, anything could be on TV in the 90s. Like, dragged (laughs) off by baboons is, that's literally insane. It's so ridiculous. That is the ridiculous climax of a Simpsons episode. No, yeah, yeah, that's not a premise. It's not. You don't need to begin with baboons dragging someone off. 